what a great pleasure to welcome you this morning after such a very rich day yesterday. And uh, this is a panel also that is made possible by uh, the El Hebri Foundation. And uh, the title is one that really poses a question, Islamophobia in the Age of Interfaith. One might actually add internet to that because all of this sort of comes together. Um, we have uh, some very wonderful uh, presenters and discussants this morning. We're going to begin with an overview of some of these issues uh, from Professor Ali Asani, my colleague and uh, office neighbor for decades, really. And it is such a pleasure to have him here. He has spent a great deal of time thinking about these issues, especially in the wake of 9-11. But he is a scholar of South Asian Islam, of Sufism, has written a number of wonderful books celebrating Muhammad, uh, images of the prophet in devotional poetry, and ecstasy and enlightenment, Ismaili devotional literature. For some years, he also was the head of the Al-Walid bin Talal Center for Islamic Studies here. Uh, he will begin with uh, a few words, then we'll turn to Parvez Ahmed, uh, who is the former Fulbright Scholar, currently a Professor of Finance at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. He has done a lot of research in many fields. He has published, he has a blog, if you look it up, uh, you will find uh, a, a series, uh, month by month, of uh, sort of public uh, uh, articles and articles in newspapers and magazines. Uh, he is an Islamic public intellectual in the finest sense, and he also is the protagonist of one of the Pluralism Project's uh, case studies, a, a, uh, an extraordinary case study uh, written by the extraordinary Ellie Pierce, our researcher, senior researcher and case writer, um, posing the dilemma that Parvez once faced of uh, being nominated for the Human Rights Commission in Jacksonville, Florida, and suddenly uh, feeling the pressure of a barrage of critique of who he was, uh, guilt by association, the organizations that he had belonged to, uh, the fact that he was a Muslim at all. Um, and some of that was very much what we might call organized Islamophobia. Uh, then we have, um, I'm not sure who's next on the the list here, but let me introduce um, Imam Hassan Salim, who is uh, Egyptian-born Imam at the mosque uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Not the old mother mosque of America, which is also in Cedar Rapids, and which is the first of the still standing uh, mosques built in the 1930s through bake sales and and uh, dinners and that sort of thing by the early Islamic community on the Great Plains. So Imam ha uh, Hassan Salim is with the Islamic Center of Cedar Rapids, a newer center, uh, a citizen now of the United States and uh, deeply engaged in what it means to lead uh, an Islamic community in uh, a flourishing city in the Midwest. And, he also is the protagonist of one of our case studies. This is not about our case studies this morning, but it, it does, it, that poses the dilemma that is faced by many religious leaders. Um, what does a Islamic leader of a community um, have to say to his community when Donald Trump comes to town for a rally? 
in the uh, late fall of 2015. And then we have Salim Ibrahim, who teaches Islamic studies and co-directs the Center for Interreligious and Communal Leadership. Uh, that is Circle, uh, whose other co-director, Jenny Peace, is also with her. Um, and she is, uh, publishes in Muslim feminist uh, theology and Islamic leadership. She is the Muslim chaplain for Tufts University and has a master's degree in women and gender studies and Near Eastern and Judaic studies from Brandeis and also a master of divinity from this very institution. And finally, uh, we have uh, Imam Taimullah Abdurrahman, the uh, current chaplain for Muslim students at Harvard University, also a chaplain for the Mass Department of Correction uh, and Northeastern University where he has previously served and he teaches a graduate course on Islam here at Harvard Divinity School and is the author of 44 Ways to Manhood and uh, received an Islamic Sciences Diploma in Saudi Arabia in 2006. It's wonderful to have this group of people as our discussants this morning on a topic that is of concern to so many of us. And I might say in advance, there are some of the students who are here who will probably have to leave at 10 o'clock for another class, but um, if they sneak out, it's not because they're disgusted with what's going on. <laughs> uh, so let me begin. Ali Asani, uh, kick us off, okay? Right. Um, well, first of all, I'm uh, really honored to, um, to be asked to say a few words uh, on this topic of Islamophobia in the age of interfaith. Um, well, when Diana first asked me, I said, well, what am I going to say? We know Islamophobia exists. Uh, it's here. And, uh, but as I was reflecting on this in the last two, three days, um, while it's sort of very much in the limelight today in the United States, um, we have to keep in mind that there is a very, very long history of this. It goes back many centuries. Uh, this fear of Islam and fear of Muslims, um, you know, goes back, I think, you know, you know, I would say even to the very founding of the Islamic, of, of the tradition itself. Um, but in any case, what I want to highlight today is the particular context, some thoughts about the particular context that we're in and how we are thinking about Islam today. And what, from my perspective, we are totally missing out on just gaps in our knowledge. Um, I always, when I'm talking about Islam, I always like to uh, uh, use this little uh, image. Um, it's, of course, uh, an old image in the sense that the story of the blind man trying to define an elephant, uh, who the elephant is, uh, goes back many centuries, even has you know, Buddhist roots, from what I understand, and then Rumi picks it up, and then many other people have used it. And this particular rendition I find is interesting because you find all the people are blindfolded. Um, and what I think it, for me, why this is a very powerful image, because it's, uh, it conveys in a, in a very graphic sense that how knowledge is being constructed. Uh, the tools that are used, 
to construct knowledge, and of course, the situatedness of the person who's constructing knowledge. And so depending on where you are, uh, you will come up with a very different definition of what an elephant is, or if you say what Islam is. And of course, if your tools are just limited to the sense of touch, and you can't see the big picture, of course you're going to get a very, very distorted picture of what Islam is. Um, and so these, I think one of the big issues today is, of course, this, not, this idea of constructions of Islam. How do we know what we know about Islam and what factors influence those constructions? Um, I think in our current environment, uh, particularly in the context of the United States, but I think also uh, very much so in Europe and interesting even places like India, um, there is this, uh, the constructions of Islam have become embedded with, within nationalist discourse and the idea of nation state and nationalism. Um, so here, for example, we are finding that or we see that uh, what Islam is and who is a Muslim uh, uh, is in fact become a political football between different definitions on this, in this battle to define uh, who, is America, who is an American, what, is, uh, what are American values. And this ultimately, from my perspective in the contemporary context, is the battle between two forms of nationalism exclusivist forms of nationalism and this inclusivist forms of, of nationalism. Nationalisms that seek to exclude people and that I think is one of the problems of nationalism as an ideology because nationalism is premised on the notion of the other. And of course the other can keep on changing. Uh, right now the other is the Muslim uh, in nationalist discourse. And of course, there are forms of nationalism that are trying to be inclusive. Let's talk about belonging and who belongs and um, let's not talk about the, the language of exclusion. What I do, of course, want to point out is that while we have these um, uh, manifestations of, national, of exclusivist nationalism, um, uh, that we find particularly prominent in, uh, uh, in Donald Trump and some of the representatives of the uh, Republican uh, Party. Uh, what I think people forget that this, in fact, is it's not just based on ignorance and prejudice and fear. It is, in fact, part of a well-structured design campaign what I think people forget. And behind this campaign is a whole range of groups, individuals, uh, well-funded, um, and just to name some names here, we have the Center for Security Policy, for example, with founder Frank Gaffney. Uh, we find many people of, as part of this well-funded network of institutions that are anti-Muslim, um, uh, are very prominent in the uh, in the ad, uh, in, in role as advisors uh, to politicians, but this group actually has, in fact, um, 
uh, I think, managed to secure influence even at state legislature level. So they influence politicians, they influence media. And so, for example, this, the passing of all these anti-Sharia bills uh, across state legislators, even though no Muslim has, in fact, even asked for Sharia to be imposed in the United States, but nevertheless, let's preempt them and just have these uh, bills. What is interesting about some of these bills is the language of these bills mirrors exactly what the Center for Security Policy has drafted. So you can see a very close connection with these campaigns. And so this is not just some random act of ignorance and prejudice. This is well manipulated. And for those of you who are interested, I will highly recommend that you look at this book by Christopher Bale, who's a sociologist, did his PhD here at Harvard, terrified. And how really the anti-Muslim fringe organizations, uh, especially the, as they arose after 9-11, have now actually become mainstream. And they have tremendous influence, not just on politicians, but also on media. So I think that's a very, very important. So this is a whole new dimension of combating Islamophobia, that you're actually dealing with an entire movement really well-funded. And, and I think this, this title, Terrified, is very, very appropriate because this is, this is what we are contending with. And of course, uh, I want to invoke my colleague uh, Amrit Asen, who of course says that one of the consequences of this unidimensional analysis or looking at somebody just on the basis of their religion, and if their religion is dangerous, that means they are de facto religious enemy to the state. Um, that, you know, combines, I think in his words, you know, a haziness of vision uh, with increased scope for the exploitation of that haze by champions of violence. And I think today, if the Muslim community suffers violence, not just physical violence, but I think mental violence, you know, violence against their dignity, it is primarily due to this, this set of network of institutions that, that has made it so uncomfortable being Muslim in the United States. What I find very disturbing is, of course, that in the media is, of course, nobody actually talks about this organ, this network, that this is what's really going on. Um, on the other hand, you have, of course, the inclusivist discourse of nationalism, that no, there's no conflict between Islam and American values. Uh, we see, of course, uh, uh, President Obama during his speech in Cairo, 2009, also talked about, you know, well, Islam and America don't need to be in conflicting categories. They didn't need to be competition. And based on all of that, some of the reflections that I have in terms of because the constructions of Islam are so embedded in constructions of nationalism, um, we have tended to focus on Islam as ideology of difference, or Islam as an ideology, as opposed to Islam as faith. And I think, you know, I very often talk about Islam with a capital I, 
which is the name of a religion, but a socio-political ideology, and as opposed to Islam with a small i, which is the act of submission to God, and talks about how an individual relates to God. And of course, this Islam with a small i, Islam is faith, is in fact how the Quran uses the term. The Quran does not use the term Islam as a name of an, a socio-political ideology. So in all these discourses, we are losing out. We don't pay enough attention to the Islam of faith. And this is ironic because we are in an age of interfaith. And where is the Islam of faith in the age of uh, uh, interfaith? And in this context, I want to uh, invoke um, uh, something that Mohammed Arkun, the French philosopher, um, has talked about what he calls the silent Islam. And he defines the silent Islam, what I would say the Islam of faith. The silent Islam um, is the Islam of the true believers who attach more importance to their religious relationship with the absolute God than to the vehement demonstrations of political movements. And this silent, he calls it silent, because discussions about Islam in the media, in the public, but even in the academy are really monopolized by thinking about Islam as ideology, Islam as an ism. Uh, and of course, some of these constructions of Islam, uh, some of it has Orientalist roots. But he claims that some of these Islam as ideology um, are, in fact, in reality, secular movements disguised by religious discourse, rites, and collected behaviors. So he talks about the need that our understandings of Islam today are totally inadequate because we do not pay attention to the silent Islam, the Islam of the masses. Millions of people, what we're doing is we're focusing on the Islam of the elites and the ideological formulations of, of Islam. And so I actually uh, call these Islams as ideologies, as isms, I like to call them loud Islam. Because they're loud because they, their, their voices have been amplified in the political, social, and cultural spaces. Of the, uh, so, and how do we access the silent Islam, the Islam of faith? And for me, and this is um, just the way I sort of think about faith, is that you can access them to most people. I think the Islam of faith is a multi-sensory experience. It is, it is religion as experienced, it's emotive, and it's a different kind of knowledge construction. And the arts, uh, the sonic arts, sound arts, visual arts, literary arts, are the primary way in which Muslims experience the Islam of faith. Um, so in the age of interfaith, I think we're going to try to access that Islam of faith and understand what it means to be a devout Muslim. And of course, there are many different constructions of what it means to be a devout Muslim. We have to rethink the paradigms uh, in how we think about Islam and how we engage with Islam as a faith tradition. All right. So with that, I will stop. Thank you.
Good morning. Good morning. Um, first, let me thank Diana. You have been such an inspiration, not only uh, for academics, but also for practitioners. Um, I have used your work um, liberally, quoted you liberally. Hopefully, I attributed every time I quoted you. <laughs> um, so, in my view, Islamophobia in America today uh, lies at the cross-section of uh, racism and xenophobia. Although all Muslims are not of a particular race, and of course all Muslims are not immigrants, uh, Islamophobia, as Professor Hassani has just articulated, is indeed well-funded, and Diana, you alluded to that yesterday also, the, the groundbreaking report um, Fear, Inc. by the Center for American Progress uh, is very illustrative of how well-funded, and they only scratched the surface of what we call the Islamophobia industry. Um, so without a doubt, it is, it is well-funded. But it also we also have to acknowledge that some of the Islamophobic attitude uh, in, in America and in the West also depends upon the extreme attitudes within Muslim societies. Without a doubt, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism has a contagion uh, to fuel this thing. In fact, both sides depend on each other, which is ironic. They are against each other, but they're heavily dependent on each other's narrative to fuel, further fuel this narrative. Uh, Professor Hassan, I'm so grateful that you articulated the global trend on nationalism. Uh, but I also want to add, it is not just nationalism that is fueling the rise of Islamophobia today, but it's also authoritarianism. And again, there is, there is no, it defies easy stereotypes, because you see the resurgence of nationalism and authoritarianism from Turkey to India, from Russia to Egypt, and, and also in our own backyard. So all of these have, have been contributing factors. Um, so in, in 2008, uh, when, let me turn it this way, it's easier to read. Uh, so in 2008, when we as a nation, we elected our first African-American uh, to the highest office in land, um, it was indeed a giant step towards a pluralistic society, um, a society where we aspire to be judged by the content of our character and not by our color or race or religion. Let's pause and think about how remarkable 2008 was, not only that the first black person was elected to the highest office in land, but it happened despite an ugly and vicious rumor that Obama is Muslim and Kenyan. By the way, the rumor still persists today. So eight years after the fact, we are still fighting that same, same ugliness. But it spoke volumes about us as people that we were able to overcome that stereotype and still elect this man to office, and did it twice. So regardless of where one straddles the political spectrum, one cannot but be impressed with this great exercise in democracy and pluralism. However, the optimism of that day or that moment was soon challenged, and we see this by, by 2014. Uh, Ferguson had become axiomatic of the deep roots um, of the problem at hand, and then the, the terrible tragedy in Charleston uh, jarringly reminded that we are nowhere close to where, what we, where we thought we were. And so, of course, this week, Tulsa and Charlotte, and next week, who knows where. 
Um, so 50 years after the Civil Rights Act, racial inequality remains an indelible part of our American landscape. Uh, today, black America is 28% less equal than white America. And this is based on a composite of many statistics, from income inequality to social mobility. Hispanic Americans are slightly better off, about 22% less equal. Um, and so even, even if you look at the state of college-educated African Americans, they are facing higher barriers to employment compared to white counterparts. Uh, the state of black America indeed can be described as a crisis, although not in the way Donald Trump describes it. Um, and this is happening despite the fact that there are more black lawmakers in the US Congress than ever before. The president is black, and the current and past attorney generals are black. Uh, so just having a few people elected here and there does not change the overall narrative of the society or the overall trajectory of the society. It's a much harder work. And so the same kind of analogy holds uh, for the Muslim community over here. Although there are Muslims who have, uh, in this society, in this country, that have achieved extraordinary success, um, but the, the overall state of affairs remains challenging. Um, so America, in my view, is failing the test of pluralism, both economic and social. We are a nation of extraordinary wealth, but we are also a nation in significant social uh, turmoil and rising income inequality. Um, our crisis of pluralism extends to other <coughs> racial and religious minorities. Uh, we have seen this in this presidential election, how, how Mexican immigrants have, been, have essentially become a, a, a talking point uh, of a presidential candidate. Um, and this despite the fact that by 2030, one in five Americans will be of Hispanic heritage. Um, and more than six out of 10 Hispanic Americans will be born in the US. Uh, so in religious pluralism, um, we are not faring any better. Uh, you recall the story of not too long ago of this 14-year-old Sudanese boy, Ahmed uh, Muhammad, who was arrested for bringing a clock to school. Uh, he was treated as a threat by his own school and police for bringing an electronic clock, which he thought he was going to show off to his school teacher. Um, not too long ago, and I'm, you're all familiar with the various snippets, uh, various uh, stories or various incidents that, are, that could be construed as Islamophobic. And I just want to draw upon a few of them just to kind of motivate the discussion. Um, at a recent, not a recent, about a few months ago at a town hall meeting, um, Donald Trump's town hall meeting, one questioner asked him this question, we have got a problem in this country, it's called Muslims. We know the president is one. Uh, he added, the questioner added that, you know he's not, an Ameri not even an American. So this comment, of course, went unchallenged by Trump, and the media outrage was mostly focused on, uh, on the questioner not calling President Obama an American. But what was missing from the conversation was the other part of his statement that said, we have got a problem in this country, it's called Muslims. That was completely glossed over. Um, so even when we have opportunities, media and public intellectuals have the opportunity to center these discussions, on how do these attitudes even get, uh, get, uh, get articulated and not challenged back by, by a presidential candidate, and of course, uh, the media often falls flat. Um, and you know, Trump is hardly alone. You know, Trump is not um, the person who has, is, is 
fueling Islamophobia or started Islamophobia. He's simply a person who is riding the wave. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you look at the attitudes from his supporters, um, one of the studies that I saw recently was uh, that uh, one of the surest way of understanding who a Trump supporter is, is to ask the question, uh, do you think President Obama was born in this country? And if, and, and if they say, answer no, seven out of 10 chance that that person would be a Trump supporter. And, and the same attitude, by the way, a same similar kind of numbers uh, extend on attitude towards Islam and Muslims. Um, earlier in January, Vox wrote an article with the headline, it's not just Fox News, Islamophobia on cable news is out of control. Uh, while Fox News is indeed the leading edge of the effort making, uh, making Americans hate and fear Muslims, but there are other media personalities that play into the same uh, simple stereotype and narrative. It is quite common to view segments on television with titles like, is Islam a destructive force? Even the question is, is offensive. Uh, is Islam violent or peaceful? Um, Islam is no more or less violent or peaceful than any other religion. Um, one should legitimately criticize the actions of individuals without trying to link every, uh, the action of every Muslim to their faith. When the hit movie American Sniper uh, came out, it was not unusual to read tweets like this, and I quote, American Sniper makes me want to go and shoot some effing Arabs. Or, uh, nice to see a movie where Arabs are portrayed for who they really are, a vermin scum intent on destroying us, end quote. Um, in our local newspaper, I recently read a letter um, that said that what is happening to the Syrian refugees is well-deserved. The fact that somebody said that, and the fact that the newspaper printed it, yeah. is just amazing to me. Um, you know, we, we are not just losing our sense of pluralism, we are losing our sense of humanity. You know, picking on the most vulnerable population on the earth today, the Syrian refugees, and making them into a political football, or even articulating that what's happening to them is, is deserved, or they're a bowl of skittles for that matter. Uh, it's just, just amazing to even, even be in this moment and witness this. And of course, this is not a victimless attitude. Uh, as Professor Hassani has articulated, there are uh, real issues that are happening within the Muslim community. Um, I have heard more ordinary members of the community express fear in the last six to eight months than I've heard in the last 15 years. Um, I'll just give you one example. Um, my son, who has been playing soccer, he's 14 years old now. Um, he's been playing soccer he's been since five, and he's, he plays all around the state. He travels around the state. He's a travel soccer player. Um, and. You know, just like any other young teenager, he sometimes has arguments with his teammates and sometimes with opposing team, but never in this 10 years or so he has ever been called with a dirty name, except in the last three months. Um, I would think it's a coincidence. I would like to think it's a coincidence, but something tells me it is not a coincidence. And what is even, even more distressing is when that incident happened, and I tried to confront the parent of that child, not so much to put the child down, but simply to 
tell the parent that this is an attitude because I would love to know if my son or my daughter uses something as vile as what that's, that guy, what that person said, I as a parent would like to know that so that I can correct my son or, or, or my children. Um, the parent's attitude was not to um, confront it, but actually to blame me for bringing it up. Um, just, his attitude essentially was just get over it. It's not, it's not a big deal. So I think, in, in other words, these attitudes are hardening in society, and there is a normalization of, uh, of these attitudes. So I want to conclude with this. Um, you know, I believe our country is at a, at, a, at a critical crossroads, and as the world keeps shrinking, ironically, instead of developing more empathy towards others, we are slipping into a dangerous territory where minority communities are being scapegoated and we are avoiding conversations on the real problems facing us as a nation. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Uh, my name is Hassan Salim. I, it's Friday morning, and usually I would be preparing for my khutbah or Friday sermon by now. So, uh, and like Imam Khalid Latif said yesterday, uh, and every other Imam that I know of, we tend to speak too much, more than we are allowed to. <laughs> so, um, in an attempt to both sound less preachy, because this is the mode for Friday for me, <laughs> and to control the, um, or stay within the time allowance that I have, I wrote my remarks and I hope that this won't bore you. Um, I'm truly grateful to the Pl Pluralism Project for giving me the opportunity to attend this crucial and vital gathering of individuals and ideas um, and to be part of this discussion, which couldn't be more necessary given the current national and international condition. Before I start, uh, English is not my first language. Um, and even though I may sound like I have a good command of it, I actually don't. Uh, <laughs> perhaps just a good accent, if, um, uh, if, if that even. Um, so um, precise of language is a precise of mind and thought. So I really apologize for any mistakes I will make in, um, in my, uh, in my uh, remarks. Um, let me first give you a quick background about myself before sharing with you uh, a glimpse of the work I do on, on the ground regarding Islamophobia and interfaith work. Um, I grew up in Egypt and studied Al-Azhar, uh, which was established around the, uh, the, the end of the first millennium, uh, 970 AD. Uh, studied there since the age of six, which makes it over 20 years now of continuous learning um, in both the traditional sense, meaning sitting at the feet of uh, Muslim scholars, um, and also in an academic sense, meaning sitting in a, in a classroom, in a classroom sitting. Um, at Al-Azhar, I was trained in different traditional Islamic sciences, such as fiqh or jurisprudence, usul al-fiqh or the principles of jurisprudence, sharia, uh, no need to translate this one, hadith or prophetic narrations, tafsir or Quranic commentary, and of course, uh, last but not least, the sawuf or Islamic Sufism. All of these fields of knowledge are meant to collectively create um, an intellectual and critical faculty um, and way of thinking which allows individuals who are trained in them to respond to the realities in the most creative ways, hopefully to be active, proactive, and engaging with and within their realities, taking into consideration the change of time and place um, and communities. You may call this ishtihad. Uh, some of you may have heard this word before. Ishtihad, which um, shares the same root as jihad or struggle. Also from the same root comes the word juhd or uh, fatigue 
intellectual fatigue. The root is jahada. Um, an approximate translation would be to exhaust uh, one's intellectual means to reach a conclusion, um, to reach a, a ruling, a religious ruling regarding an issue uh, or a concern. Um, so exhausting one's intellectual means to reach a religious ruling or verdict regarding a specific issue or case. Now, I must be clear, I'm not making the claim of being a mujtahid, that is one who has not only been qualified but licensed uh, to infer legal rulings from the scriptures. Uh, and God forbid I'm not also making the claim of being a mujtahid mutlaq, an Arabic word that means an absolute mujtahid, one who uh, actually founds an, an, a school of Islamic thought like the famous four Sunni Islamic um, school of thoughts. Uh, with that being said, it is important to note ijtihad is a tool that is made available to all individuals of the Muslim communities seeking to make sense of their realities. Now, in 2013, I became the imam to what is considered one of the oldest Muslim communities in America. Though this definition, the word oldest, overlooks the rich history of African Islam that has been present in this country since its founding. As an imam, I found myself facing the responsibility of not only carrying on and maintaining the tradition of this um, Midwestern Muslim community, but also fulfilling their evolving needs at the same time, a time of um, Islamophobia. Uh, to fulfill this responsibility, I've evolved, I have evolved four main strategies. Before I share the strategies, I should note that they all stem from the first one, just for your um, reference. Number one, utilizing ijtihad to the best of my abilities to tackle issues such as empowering women and youth, um, gender equality in my community and other communities I work with. Number two, drawing on the unique past experience of history or history of the Cedar Rapids community. Very unique past, such um, having strong relations with the Christian Lebanese community in the city, which arrived earlier, and um, both the Muslim and the Christian community there helped each other build their first places of worship. Um, our, uh, in our case, the Mother Mosque of America. Empowering and engaging the youth by teaching them the tools of ishtihad, which protects them against radicalization and allows them to forge their identity, giving their unique circumstances. And four, building a strong interfaith alliance that works as a backbone that holds the broader Cedar Rapids community together and makes the Cedar Rapids Muslim community a stronger part of the fabric of the city and the state. Some examples involving the youth and interfaith community service projects, inviting Holocaust survivors to the mosque, all of whom have actually never been invited to a mosque to, to share their experience before, women spearheading and initiating interfaith service projects. And please note that I'm not saying um, interfaith dialogue. Um, I don't think that uh, an imam and a priest and a rabbi getting together and sharing tea and smiling um, and being nice to one another um, is really can be effective uh, as much as really doing the work on the ground. Mm -hmm. If Ishtihad has allowed me to identify and implement these four strategies, the Sawuf or Sufism has taught me and helped me get rid of my fears. Fear of the other, fear of being labeled as the other, fear of the outcomes of working with others regardless of our differences, Fear of the difficulty of finding and at times creating common grounds. 
Peter walking into a church for the first time and um, to um, explain my faith to others, to claim my faith back. Fear of um, inviting a Holocaust survivor to the mosque, knowing that members of my congregation, to say the least, uh, will disagree. Fear of losing uh, a job um, for making a public appearance in front of a gay club um, to show solidar solidarity to the LGBT community after Orlando. And even to this point, fear that someone of, from my congregation will watch the recording of this session and decide that I'm not fit to be their imam anymore. Um, working with this mindset and focusing on these four strategies, strategies, I have learned that Islamophobia is in an opportunity rather than a catastrophe, a problem. It is an opportunity. Now, now is not the time to point fingers, to play the blame game. Now is time to deeply reflect on the past and learn lessons to keep an eye on the future and plan for it, all while proactively engaging with the present. Ishtihad and interfaith work are very critical in achieving this. It is also time to know our friends and allies, but more importantly, it is time when forgiveness and reconciliation with those who we may perceive as, for the lack of a better word, not friends or allies, uh, lest we become so busy defending ourselves and consumed in returning the phobia and hatred and stereotypes and all of that. Um, thank you, I will stop here. Assalamu alaikum, peace and blessings be upon you all. It's a pleasure to be back upon, with many mentors and friends and colleagues uh, and, and the other inspiring panelists today. I'm a woman who likes to tell stories and I'm a woman who likes action steps. So I'm gonna tell stories and then give you action steps from every story. We talk a lot about the power of stories and we've, ha we've heard some wonderful ones here today already. So my first story comes from a student and she writes it in the form of a poem. Now this is an Andover Newton student that I have who's actually the first Muslim uh, in our new Masters of, of uh, Interreligious Global Leadership cohort. And she writes, imagine you are on the train platform, red line, heavy rail, outbound rush hour, your hijab tucked through, tight through eyelet holes, your origin, a classroom, fifth floor, your destination, the comfort of your bed. Then something hits you like a train. Your toes feel the uprise bumps on the yellow line, and you instinctively take one, two, three steps back. Look right, look left. You grasp your scarf and wonder if you're further back on the platform than Sanando Sen was in 2012. In these moments, I remember that I'm claimed by an entity larger than myself, one that is prodded at at Uber rides after long shifts at Starbucks. I am your uncle's favorite Fox News topic, and I've memorized every verse before and after the ones they like to quote. I am a ruh, a spirit, dignified, with faith tattooed on my soul, the same ruh that Rumi speaks of in his poems, the same Rumi that soccer moms keep next to their 50 shades of gray. <laughs> but now, in this moment, I'm nothing but a ruh tied to you. So that's a poem by, by Zandra uh, Minter. 
Uh, I hold a number of different roles, and they give me a unique vantage point on what Islamophobia looks like within the Muslim community. I'm not saying that, that Muslims themselves have, have uh, Islamophobia, but what the effects are of, of the, the Islamophobia. So I want to tell you uh, just a few stories about that. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes in my work as a chaplain, I hear things that I'm not exactly able to repeat in their, their full uh, their, their fullness, but what I can say is that so many young people who are going out into the workplace their first time are leaving environments in where, wherein they've had a diversity officer, wherein they've had clubs that support their sense of ethnic identity, sense of religious identity. And I typically can almost expect at this time of year when people are coming back from their summer internships, maybe their first experience going out into this other space that is the, the American workforce, that they will have, uh, have had profound uh, experiences, either trying to figure out how they subtly wash their feet in the bathroom sink and hide the fact that they're praying, or uh, ways in which maybe colleagues have made remarks that sometimes are innocent, but that sit with the, the the student in a in a in an unsettling way, and sometimes they're sometimes they come to me actually wanting to say, well, I've noticed that there's such a lack of knowledge about Islam in my work my workplace. I need to actually be a, you know a proactive force in in this. So how do I do that? So the, the experiences uh, range you know uh, uh, go the gamut. One thing that's encouraging to me, and this is an action step is the way in which more and more companies are reaching out and seeing cultural competence with Muslims as a you know, factor along with other types of diversity trainings. Uh, and this includes healthcare companies and uh, even, of course, universities, but uh, other places where regardless of whether it's a clientele that they're working with that may be Muslim or, or, or if they're thinking about their own employees and just how to create a, a better workplace, uh, in particular, this is, this is one domain in, in, uh, where, in which we can start to work through some of, some of the, the, the tropes that lead to, to the Islamophobia. As a Muslim public intellectual, I've also had a number of interesting experiences, one of which was giving a local program at my library in a tiny town in New Hampshire, and then seeing the next day uh, an op-ed saying, local Muslim scholar calls for Sharia, or something to that effect. <laughs> and luckily, the very next newspaper had someone from the local community defending me, saying, we must have been in a different lecture. <laughs> but this, it, it goes to the point that any of us who do this public work are always uh, walking on eggshells, and to a certain extent, worried about how our, our remarks may be completely twisted out of context. And you spoke about, about these, a number of those fears, but that, that's certainly, certainly one of them. Uh, I think in the, in the interfaith realm, there's many stories that I could tell about both successes and failures. Uh, it turns out that everyone wants a Muslim best friend, right? Uh, and they want oftentimes to uh, not necessarily go out and meet their own Muslim best friend, but you know to have... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've also experienced this, having to kind of be the liaison to kind of do that, that Islam 101 uh, buddy program. Uh, so 
It's good though. This, on the one hand, I want to say that this is a, I, I'm seeing this more and more people reaching out saying, I've, I realize I know next to nothing about Islam, you know, 15 years after it's, it's been in the public discourse in such this uh, obvious way. So it's good that people would, would like to get more opportunities, but the number of us who are uh, signed up for the buddy program, it's the, our, we're just so overtaxed. Uh, and at the same time, there's certain um, skills and training that you need to be a buddy. And for the Muslim community and also for, for you know, grant, grant, granting agencies and all the people who support that kind of civic structure of, of training, we, we really need to pay attention to the ways in which uh, there are certain skills required to be a, a Muslim public intellectual, but but simply also just a Muslim buddy who's able to do this, this work. Uh, other, other action steps. Uh, now to appreciate this one, I have to give you a little background. So I come from rural Pennsylvania, and my father is a very proud rural Pennsylvanian, formerly a New Yorker, you know, turned to the country. And his favorite pastime is to, to sit on his porch and shoot groundhogs. And, and he would verify that, I'm, I'm not, uh, he's, he's quite proud of that. Um, now, he, he's also you know, been part of a certain political party for, for basically his whole life. And when I have a conversation with him about my existential fear about the times we're in and about what that might mean for uh, the American Muslim community and you know, maybe other, others in, in who have been experiencing the, the uh, outpouring of, of violence and, and hate, and he says to me, don't worry, it's just all campaign speech. Nothing's really going to happen. And on the one hand, I kind of want to believe that. On the other hand, I can't. And so I think many of us in the Muslim community, we, we might joke around and, and talk about our escape route to Canada or talk about who might be our helpers. Um, but it is, you know, it's, it's, it's present there and it's present in the... The, the fabric of consciousness, and it's, I see that in the students I work with, I see that in my colleagues. So it, it's, a, it's a moment in which I want to be politically active in the ways that align with my values, but also, and I'm reminded of this regularly when I try to get involved in local politics in my town, I'm a liability, so I should just you know, stay away, because if I associate with, with a particular candidate, then it's actually a liability on them uh, to be seen next to me. And so I'm also very, very much aware of the ways in which many Muslims want to be engaged on, on the, the political scene uh, in support of their values, but kind of are in this strange dilemma. I think the final story I'll tell, it, you know, these are, the action step of that one is, is to say that I'd encourage people who hold public offices to just be even slightly more vocal about their support of, of inclusivity. And it's just, I, I know that it's a, a huge burden for someone who's, who's in an office like that to uh, speak out in support of, of minorities when it might uh, not be an effective campaign strategy. Uh, but we can't, I think, as as a, as a country, continue to let this issue 
kind of simmer in the background. And it has to start for me um, at, at the local level. My final story I'll tell is, is one of, of being a mother. So my husband and I made a decision fairly early on that we would ask our daughter if she'd like to wear her headscarf to school because we thought that that would, at a young age, just let the children get uh, accustomed to seeing her like this. She's, we're one of two families in our, Muslim families in our town. And so the first day, she was excited for this. She came home in tears saying that, that she had been ridiculed and, and called funny names. She decided to stick with it for the second day and, uh, and, and eventually it just became a normal, a normal thing. Now, what, what's been happening in this last year is she's seen, uh, for instance, the rhetoric about putting Muslims on lists. Uh, she's 10. I don't want to expose her to too much, but I don't want to bring her up in, in a, a complete bubble. So I decided it was time that we started reading uh, the diary of Anne Frank. So she had a sense of why this was so disturbing. Uh, she's a proud Muslim, and she'd be happy to be on a Muslim list, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, so in this, we're, we're kind of slowly digesting uh, the, the diary of Anne Frank over the last few months. Uh, and, and in this, I've, I've seen her come from just being a proud, proud Muslim, sometimes confused at, at why, you know, why people perceive her as different and kind of target her a little bit, to understanding some of the, the social dynamics. And it leaves me uh, an action step, uh, but also a question, is that our, I think children are in some ways the ones who face the brunt of the Islamophobic rhetoric the most strongly because they don't yet have necessarily the intellectual tools to, to understand the, the why of it and the, the political reasons behind it. And they're, they're still on such tender uh, terrain. And so as an action step, I'd say that we need to talk, we have you know, programs and, and active conversations with Muslim youth about the ways in which they can and should be responding when incidents come up. Uh, the ways in which uh, Islamophobia and, um, and, and the effects that we see are not necessarily about them, but about uh, wider, wider social, social realms. Uh, so my last call is just to understand as well that there is maybe a legitimate cause for fear. And that is something that's hard maybe for Muslims to say, but if you... And, I do this often just so I maintain my sense of compassion. Say, well, what if I don't know a Muslim? What if all I see is this information? Of course I'm going to have a fear. So in, in some sense, we know it's manufactured. We know it's part uh, of an organized uh, Islamophobia network. But on the other sense, there, there is a very uh, human dimension to it. And so my, my call, and it, it's a first and foremost a call to myself, and it's what kind of helps me keep going in this work when, when it seems difficult and when it seems like there's, there's no, no uh, break in sight is, is just to remember that, that compassion and remember my own ignorances on so many, so many things. So I, I'll leave you with that as well. We're, when we sit in a room and we've had the opportunities to engage across difference in so many ways that, that many people simply have, have not had that. And uh, you know, again, it's our, our, maybe our, part of our, our mission or many of our missions in this room to make that possible for more people. Uh, thank you so much.
Bismillah. Good morning. I'd like to thank Professor Eck for inviting me here. You've been so gracious to me and welcoming me to the Harvard community. Uh, Sheikh Ali Asani, who's been a great advisor and mentor to me and these fearless uh, panelists here. It's kind of hard following up after uh, those great stories and, and great narratives. Where do I start? I'm gonna try to speak from my heart. We're a world whose narratives are cyclical. And whether we like it or not, we're in a period of, of profound transition, and periods of transition can cause great turmoil, right? But there are tools we can use to build some things and deconstruct other things. To build some things and deconstruct others. We can use critical thinking, objective analysis, and hopefully we can be active witnesses, you know, and conclude like uh, the late Elie Wiesel, he said that being indifferent to the suffering of every of any marginalized group is a death sentence for all of us. Indifference is a death sentence. And as an African-American Muslim man, I've, I've found myself on an endangered species list. I have seven children, six of whom are sons. And I can't describe to you the feeling of seeing the blue lights behind me, the feeling of anxiety. I'm shootable at this time. And that's all right. If that's what Allah wants for me, I'm prepared for that. But my point in saying all of that is this. When I look at Terrence Crutcher, who was the motorist just killed a few days ago for no reason, and I see all of the African-American men and women who've been killed two dozen or so over the past few years, I'm filled with righteous anger. Righteous anger. And I have a right to be filled with righteous anger. On the other hand, when I look at Ahmed Rahami, the accused and NYC bomber, I'm filled with blistering resentment towards him and those like him to such an extent that I could cry. And in fact, I have cried. My wife and I have cried for our children. We've cried for the misuse of our faith. We've cried for our country. Because ultimately, I love my faith and I love my country. But to love is to critique, you see. And so today, I find myself two things a dissenting patriot as well as a dissenting Muslim. The current climate of implicit bias against people who have Muslim names or who, who claim a piece of the Islamic identity has made many Muslims very vulnerable. I know for myself, after the Paris attacks, two of my younger sons who are in a Boy Scout troop, that night they were supposed to go and hang bags on doors. To, to collect canned goods for the needy. But we got a call and said, don't do it. You know, my wife is in traditional hijab and abaya. They said, people don't want, they probably don't want you as a Muslim and, and a Muslim family walking up to their doors, hanging stuff on their doors. You see, I understood that, I get that. How do you tell a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old who are Boy Scouts, you can't be Boy Scouts because of confirmation bias or stereotype threat? They don't understand that concept. I, I work for an organization called Facing History in Ourselves where we, we teach educators a curriculum about the Holocaust and post-Civil War reconstruction and about genocide and a larger narrative. Last night I was at a, a movie premiere called Denial about David Sterling who in the 1990s he put out a book, he's a professor in the UK, he put out a book denying the Holocaust and how Professor Lipstadt, who is a professor at Emory College, teacher of Holocaust, how he sued her 
because she mentioned him in his book, in her book. So this was this, this movie. And what was remarkable about this movie is this single narrative he had, dehumanizing Jews. And Chimamanda Adichie, who's a famous author, she talks about the danger in a single narrative. She said the problem with a single narrative is that it creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, but that they're incomplete. They make one story the only story. And so I'm here today to tell you that Islam is not defined by terrorism. We know that. Just like African Americans are not defined by criminality. Muslim women are not defined by oppression. Africa is not defined by poverty. The Middle East is not defined by instability. You see, each of our communities, white people, black people, Jews, Christians, Muslims, is a mosaic. And within each community are different mosaics. And within each mosaic lies the beauty of diversity and intellectual thought and implementation. This is just the truth. And I say that to say frankly because whenever there's a conversation about countering Islamophobia, the conversation eventually oftentimes devolves into a conversation about why Muslims aren't terrorists. When in actuality, to have a conversation around, about Muslims around the idea that they're not terrorists is akin to having a conversation about Christians around the idea that they're not KKK. It's disproportionate. It doesn't make sense. We all, nobody looks at the KKK and says, even though they use the Bible, no one says, yeah, the KKK, the ideology, it embodies the true secret belief of Christians. No one says this. Even though slave owners for years used the Bible to justify slavery for five centuries. No one says that. So I'd much rather have a conversation about countering Islamophobia, about how Muslims since the advent of Islam over 1400 years ago have used their faith to contribute to the edification of the world. And this is just a fact. Any student of history will know this. So I'll conclude by saying that everyone in this room is very easy. We all have a superpower. So each of us has to use our superpower. I don't know what it is. You have to ask yourself, what's my superpower? But each of us has to use our superpower to stand up and disapprove of xenophobia and bigotry and racism and homophobia and whatever phobia we can think of, not just Islamophobia. We use our superpower in this way because, look, if we look back at the Weimar Republic, you know, pre-Third Reich and how progressive they were and how intellectual they were and how they valued art and diversity. And in just three years, they were transformed into the Third Reich, one of the darkest periods in history, just from rhetoric of a charismatic personality. And then we look at the upstanders, those who sacrificed their lives when they didn't have any skin in the game. They did it because it was the right thing to do. And so I'm telling you today that your superpower, that sacrifice, is as important today as it ever was. When you think about Francis Scott Key, he wrote the Star Spangled Banner 202 years ago, right? And then today, the fact that a football player is threatened with martyrdom because he refused to stand when it's played, cold, how could, how could a US citizen who's, who's expressing a healthy dissent, this dissent be equated with cold-blooded murder? So it speaks to the racist bigotry, the cancer that exists right now in the form of a, of a man with a toupee and a, and, and a red tie. So all of us, we have to go back to our communities asking ourselves, what's our superpower? 
And then when you find out what your superpower, bring it back to your community and let them know that it's all or nothing. Jazakumallahu khayran. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. just to say whatever comes to your mind that you would like to say to one another for a few minutes. Because um, this kind of discussion is, is, uh, is something we need to cherish. It really is rare. And uh, so I turn it to you for a few moments uh, to respond to each other. I would like to share just a funny uh, comment, you know, in response to. Please, uh, use your sure. <clears throat> I would just like to uh, share um, a response to the the comments you made about uh, everyone needs a Muslim best friend. And uh, when my mom was visiting me from Egypt in the last uh, couple of weeks, and she just returned last weekend, um, and she was asking me, "So, do you have did did you make friends in the last like five years you've been here?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I have lots of friends." And she said, "Okay, tell me about them." And I started saying, "Yeah, I have a, a Jewish friend that I meet with for uh, coffee every now and then, and I have uh, another friend a friend I meet with for lunch, um, you know, every Thursday." And uh, it, it, what's his name? I, his name is Charles. I, oh, is he a Muslim? I said, "No." And then uh, I, I kept telling her the list, you know. And then she said, "Do you have any Muslim friends at all?" <laughs> I said, you know, I have lots of Muslim friends, but I, I see them at work all the time. Uh, so these are the friends I meet with outside. And it ends up being uh, always, you know, these coffee and, and, and lunch conversations, always in Islam one-on-one -on -one, uh, kind of um, uh, meetings. And they're, they're really interesting in, uh, in building good, rela strong relations. And um, yeah, just, I just wanted to share this comment. I'm sorry. Thank you. Ali, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, um, you know, as I'm listening to these conversations, uh, uh, again, you know, it goes back to uh, representing who gets to represent Islam, who gets to talk about Islam, uh, the Muslim, the non-Muslim, uh, and I want to go back to this uh, this point about thinking about Islam as an ideology, because I think in a certain way it is in fact, intrinsic in the development of the tradition, you know, very early on, and I think most religious traditions, you know, they might start out from a faith perspective and then they rapidly evolve and become ideologies. Ideologies of identity, differentiating yourself from the other, but also creating discourses of orthodoxy and power and hegemony. And the history of Islam is marked by these these kinds of discussions about, you know, hegemony, power, which is the correct Islam, who is the, you know, the right Muslim, and so on and so forth. But I think that that really is the discourse, I think, that we associate with the elite. You know, whether we are talking about the Umayyads or the Abbasids or whatever, but even reform and revival, and it's, it runs through the history, and I think it runs through the history of many religious traditions. But what 
I think concerns me as an educator when you're trying to convey what Islam means to the millions of Muslims who are not interested, who are just connect, who are interested in their relationship with God. What does it mean to be Muslim? And how do Muslims see their relationship with God? So what does it mean to be Muslim in the sense of somebody who submits to God? And what does it mean to see that relationship as a relationship of love, as opposed to the ideological constructions of Islam, which are, which are premised on the notion of power and ego? And in, this, in the age of interfaith, I think it's very, very important to try to get across. And the big question is, how do we do this? You know, to be able to create a distinction, because I think the ideology of Islam is power, uh, is 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 somehow based on this ideology of othering, and I think the Islam of faith, which embraces the other, which thinks about Muslim as this larger category, is anybody who submits to God is a Muslim. In fact, the whole of nature is Muslim. You know, those kinds of discourses, which embraces the other which is where I think, for me, um, uh, this is a, a huge task. And how do we counter this Islamophobia, which is really based on Islam as an ideology? And how do you say, well, there's a totally other way of thinking about this, which embraces the other? Can I just move quickly? Um, Diana, you plugged my blog at the beginning of your remarks. I'll just give it a, give it a full plug. I just don't want you to Google it. Just I'll give you what the URL is. It's forcommongood.com. And one of the things that, I, uh, that I've written on my blog is about what Professor Hassani just talked about, is about the internal pluralism in Islam, um, or, inter or lack thereof, today in contemporary Muslim societies. It is uh, from women's rights to inclusion, uh, of, of, of uh, LGBT rights to, uh, uh, to inclusion of people who have been, for, for generations, they have been excluded from being full members of the Muslim community. I'm thinking about the Ahmadiyyas in Pakistan, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and in and many other societies. So this type of lack of internal pluralism has to be made part of a broader discussion on Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. It is not just enough to say that, well, there are others who are, who are fearful of us. Mm -hmm. But the fact remains that Muslims are fearful of each other. Right. You are othering people from within your own community and creating litmus tests of who belongs and who doesn't belong. And I think that internal discourse has to be made. And this is a good time for the Muslims to kind of wake up to that, to that conversation. Mm -hmm. I know we have questions from the audience. So I'm going to stand up so I can see who is here and, uh, and uh, recognize some of the hands that, that might be here as well. Yes, uh, Zahir uh, Ali. Yes, good morning. Um, thank you all. Uh, I'm interested in this idea of the, the silent Islam or the Islamist faith. Mm -hmm. how, how do you? Uh, anyone want to respond to that? Sure. Taimala. 
Thank you. I think that, that was a, that's a great question. And actually, the sheikh, when he said it, it resonated so, so much with me. Um, because oftentimes, as Sheikh Pervez just mentioned, that uh, the Muslims are not critical of one another. And that's why I mentioned being a dissenting Muslim, because there's Islamophobia in Islam. And how can we expect the greater, uh, the greater American public to accept us if we don't accept one another? But I also think that, that in terms of the silent Islam, in some places, Muslims find it easier to pick up a gun and kill someone in protest rather than if we're going to have the silent Islam, as the Sheikh mentioned, the Quran encourages us to, um, to seek help through patience and prayer, right? So this is the fundamental, this is the go-to, this is the default. And there are mechanisms built within Islam, like all religions, where that silent, that, that solitude is, is pivotal. It's the crux of everything we believe. So I, I always say, instead of thinking about occupying Wall Street, spend some time occupying the prayer mat. We beseech the Lord for when we really need help, right? So if we really say, if we really are believers in what we claim, if we have conviction, I was speaking here last week and I was saying how faith without confidence is just theory. But faith with confidence is conviction. And if we have that conviction, then we have to get up at night and beseech the Lord with tears and fast. Fasting in Islam is something that is, holds a high rank. And there's, no, there's nothing against waking up and saying, my intention is to fast today for injustices all over the world. So to use our faith as a tool and a means to rectify our affairs in this world. And in fact, I would say, I would argue that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his companions, this is how they were able to accomplish what they accomplished in, just, in, in, in two decades. Um, yes, uh, um, let's yeah. back there. Um, and, and just identify yourself. And okay. Have. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add uh, from my perspective that if you look at definitions from a faith perspective of what is righteousness, how it's defined in the tradition. And righteousness is not just about faith to God, but it's your obligations. What you have to the poor, the sick, the needy, it's all about social justice. But it empowers the individual to do this. So I think that, that Islam of faith is very much connected with discourses of social justice. So it has but, to speak in that case. That's right. Absolutely yeah. has to get out there. Yeah. Um, yes, a question here? And identify yourself, please. Hi, my name is Corey Spender. I'm a first-year MCS here. Um, thank you I'll take a quick stab at it. I wrote an article saying that Donald Trump is a proto-fascist. Uh, so I'm not bashful about making that comparison. The comparison does not apply literally, um, but there are um, remarkable signs within society um, that we are closer to that uh, shameful episode in human history uh, than we'd like to believe we are. Uh, there's a study that was done by two professors, I think at the University of Washington, who are regarded as experts in, uh, and their name escapes me right now, exp experts in um, 
uh, on genocides. And what they said, I'm giving you like a top-line conclusion of their, of their research, is that although we are not in any danger of a genocide in the immediate future in the, in the US, but many of our social signals are pointing toward that direction. So the fact that we are even trending in that direction, we're perhaps not close, thankfully, but we are, the fact that in 2016, we have taken this ugly turn to that shameful episode of human history is itself a concern. We don't have to be, get close to be alarmed about it. We should be alarmed that we have made a U-turn toward that direction. Celine, you were the one who mentioned that you had uh, yes. encouraged your daughter to look at the diary of Anne Frank. Uh, so a lot of what colors my thoughts this week on the issue is the New Yorker piece that came out that actually looks at uh, Donald Trump's campaign and then makes projections based on how the campaign is run, uh, knowing that it's a, it's a political continuum and that there is already you know, an office of transition that's taking particular steps, that's employing particular people. Uh, and it wasn't until, I think, this week that I, uh, that I read that article. And I, I, maybe perhaps like people in the room, I go back and forth between not wanting to be alarmist but not wanting to be naive. Uh, and I'll just say, it, it, we, perhaps we shouldn't be one or the other, but kind of inhabit both spaces simultaneously. Thank you. We're going over here to Catherine Laurie. Does anyone have a microphone today? You'll just have to speak uh, loudly. speak loudly. Good, thank you, you can. <laughs> Excellent. And then we're right behind you also, I saw you. Mm -hmm. Nancy, uh, uh, come on up and say, this is Nancy Khalil, who uh, spoke yesterday in the first panel. Nancy, have a, have a bit there. You can thank me later, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, good morning. Uh, so, uh, the, we co-founded an organization a couple of years ago called the Muslim Justice League. I think it, it's written as Muslim Defense League in some of the, the um, pamphlets out, but it's called the Muslim Justice League, and it was really founded in particular in response to a lot of the um, concerns for civil rights intrusions in the face of some of the growing national security initiatives that are taking place. <clears throat> so it broadly touches on some of the issues within um, fear and Islamophobia that we mentioned here that I think root a lot of these policies, but, but the organization in particular is focusing on those um, and the executive director does a lot of work uh, in terms of Know Your Rights workshops for different communities within like the Muslim um, congregations. Uh, she does things like represent people who have been contacted by the FBI so that they have um, representation. But the, the, I think what underlies all this is you know, the need for such, for such an organization. We're not the only one. There are several throughout the country. Um, and the amount of requests we get that are things that are outside our capacity, like how do we respond to issues of Islamophobia. <coughs> so to touch on that, uh, there's actually a workshop happening tomorrow that's being organized by Jewish Voices for Peace that's a train the trainers, particularly on this topic. How do we teach people to teach others what to do in the face of Islamophobia when they witness it? And this is a request that 
I've received as a random person um, from different school boards in the state, from different university, from like diversity administrators, um, just just BBNN, the School of Public Health here at Harvard, the Boston Public Schools, the Cambridge Public Schools, to name a few. So there's definitely, a, you know, people are wanting to help, wanting to know what to do, and mm -hmm. and I'm grateful for Jewish Voices of Peace for putting this um, workshop together. I'll be attending it tomorrow, but uh, I think it's an area that's growing to, Thank you. to conserve time. <laughs> One might add, actually, that there are many organizations that are sort of fueled by uh, by this new kind of nativism that are also called the Center for Peace and Justice or that sort of thing. You know, they have these sort of uh, these kinds of mm -hmm. these kinds of names. Thank you, Nancy, very much. And if you'll give the mic to the gentleman with the blue shirt, and it'll be over there, then we can pass on to uh, Chloe um, Breyer. Good morning. If that works, I don't know if it works or not. It does. Uh, I'm Bob Lurie, and I'm president of Kids for Peace Boston. And I was very struck when Dr. Ahmed talked about that we avoid conversations of the real problem. And I'd like to offer, and I would probably only say this in a forum like this, uh, that while Islamophobia is a real problem, I believe it may be a symptom of a bigger problem. And Taimullah talked about the fact that we have to have a larger narrative. So I speak, first of all, with one bigger problem. And I know Nancy, I know Celine, I know Taimula. Three people I couldn't respect more. I totally trust them. They share my values. How do we establish a narrative that allows immigrants, that allows the other, to understand that we share the same values? That's a bigger problem. A second bigger problem is power is a zero-sum game. And in order for me to give my power to Taimula, who's my brother, uh, or to Celine, or to Nancy, or a number of others in the room, I have to recognize that I view it not as a loss, but as a gain. That we establish something together so that we share power for the benefit of all of us. And I think that's a second important narrative and conversation that we don't have. And then the third one is this country, in my opinion, has not come to grips with the issue of the relative standing of constitutional law, national law, versus religious law. And it's not just Sharia law. It's Jewish law, well, I'm Jewish. It's any other law that says that freedom of speech does not trump constitutional law and the rights we share as Americans. Yeah. So those are three of the bigger problems that I think we need to be discussing. Thank you. Um, and would you pass the mic in, to in front of you, uh, we have uh, Chloe Breyer. Thank you so much. And I'm wondering if the panelists, um, if you have to think of in the past 15 years, so just using 9-11 as a somewhat arbitrary but not totally arbitrary starting point, what have been the one or two cultural, religious, political, or legal events that have done the most to offset uh, Islamophobia, in your opinions? Thank you. Uh, who wants to take on that one? Parvez? Well, well Islamophobia Start. has gotten worse since 9-11 which is remarkable, right? Um, and uh, look at any objective survey, 
there are more Americans today that are fearful of Islam and Muslims than in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, and there are several contributing factors to it, uh, from wars to terrorism to the Islamophobia industry to attitudes in the Muslim world. There's, there is no single factor. I think we are always looking for the single bullet that would solve the problem, but it's a multifaceted problem. So I cannot think of a single event uh, that has reduced Islamophobia when in the evidence is Islamophobia is on the rise. Uh, but there has been, which is also remarkable because since 9-11, um, and uh, there has been a tremendous increase in interfaith dialogue. There has been a tremendous increase in civic society cooperation that is inclusive of Muslims, that was not so much inclusive of Muslims pre-9-11, but post-9-11 that is inclusive of Muslims. So on one hand, you have this trend, but the, the, the larger narrative is overwhelming this trend. So yes, there are more Americans today engaged in conversation about Islam and Muslims. Universities are offering more courses on, on Islam and Muslims. I think university, uh, universities who are offering more courses uh, are also they're filling up their classrooms uh, faster. Um, and it's this, both, of, both of these things are, are operating in, in parallel. But I think the larger political discourse is overwhelming the civic society trends. And I, I, I come from India, and uh, I, I've lived as a religious minority all my life, in India and now in, in the US. Um, so in India today, the three most famous personalities in India today are Muslims. They're the three biggest movie stars in India. Mm -hmm. Uh, and th I think two of them are the two highest paid actors in the world. Um, but at the same time, in India today, I just I was in, I was, uh, in India over the summer visiting my family, um, a person can get killed on the suspicion that they ate beef. Just think about that. It's, and it, in a country that has, you know, its, its biggest uh, cultural export is the Taj Mahal, built by a Muslim. So Muslim culture is rooted, is infused with an Indian culture at so many levels, from popular culture to art to literature, at every level. And yet that's the reality too, that a person can be killed. And in fact, a person was killed mm -hmm. on the mere suspicion that the, he, he had or his family had beef in their freezer at home. Um, and, I, and, the, and when I think about that, what is, called, what is fueling that kind of attitude is the larger political narrative. Because the people who are on this you know, beef protection or you know, protect the cow uh, campaign um, are also part of the coalition of the governing party. So Other responses you know, I know we don't like what, politics. I mean, to, your question really is what... Uh, can you ma name points on this last 15 years where Islamophobia seems to have been kindled? Yeah, um, if Imam. I have just a, a comment. Um, reduced yeah, or kindled? Reduced. Oh, was it reduced or kindled? No, no, reduced. I was really trying to get at well, like, what are effective ways. Effective ways, okay. So I should say that perhaps I'm the youngest um, 
in, 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 on the panel, and I'm not bragging, I'm just saying, I might, <laughs> I'm, I might be naive uh, in my response to this, but also please take in mind that I've only been in America for the last five years, so I can't go really back to the 15 years. Uh, my view is, is, and, and, uh, is limited on this. But I think if we are to come up with, um, if we are to come up with a really, um, um, if we come with a solid response to this, to, to the idea, the, the problem of, of Islamophobia in the interfaith age, we really should not limit our, you know, um, area of, 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 under, of trying to understand the problem to just the last 15 years. Um, Islam has been founded for the last 1400 years. Mm -hmm. And if we look at Islam um, in this sense, and, and Muslims, Muslim communities around the world, and, and now, you know, in America, from the very beginning, Muslims have been dealing with the idea of, of Islamophobia. Uh, I, from my honest studying of Islam for the last 20 years or so, I don't think that um, we've made it like a big deal. We haven't been acting as from this victim mentality, um, being under attack all the time, being profiled. If, if anything, and I go back to the idea of silent Islam versus loud Islam, um, I'm not really sure if I totally agree with it because Muslims have utilized, again, and I use uh, their, their, my remarks, ishtihad, um, to not necessarily be loud, but to be productive. You know, um, we've had discussions yesterday with Muslims producing the beautiful, you know, uh, buildings in Spain, Muslims uh, contributing to the uh, science, to um, astronomy and other fields and, and, and chemistry and all of that. Uh, I don't think these were people who were like really living in a rosy, um, very peaceful and inclusive societies uh, where they did not have to deal with Islamophobia. Uh, I, I, I just think that they were not, they were not um, loud, but they were not really silent. They have used and utilized the tools that they had, that they have kind of developed, i.e. ishtihad, in all of the different areas, political, econom economical, and, and otherwise, um, and social, to, I guess the word, for lack of a better word, get over themselves, <laughs> and just build a civilization. And unfortunately, and again, I come back that I've only been here for five years, and I'm the youngest, though I might be naive, uh, but I'm also hopeful. I, I, when I came, I was really shocked that Muslims, uh, I, I came from Egypt, studied in Al-Azhar, and I was really hopeful that I will see that Muslims have really, have done a great deal of, you know, um, contributing and, 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 and adding and, and creating and this intellectual productivity. And uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, it is not as much as I have wished coming from, you know, from Egypt, a third world country, you know, from the background of Al-Azhar, as, as much as I've, I've wished to, to have seen. Um, and and that's, that's my response to the, the, the question regarding the mm -hmm. last 15, and, and that's not to disregard any achievements that have been done. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the, um, being trapped in the last 15 years and being trapped in Islamophobia really acts as an obstacle 
in the way we were, I was having conversations yesterday with wonderful people about art. Uh, yesterday we watched this, read the poem or watched the, the play and um, the, the wonderful discussion how they, the Sikh community have used art, performance to heal, self-heal and to forgive um, and to try to understand. Um, um, where's that? Where's the art? Where's, mm -hmm. where's all of that? Uh, but, but, sorry. Um, yeah. We'll have a comment from Salim, and then I want to go to a, another question. I think we need more people from Just, the audience. That will be, is it Avi? Uh, up in the corner, and Salim. Uh, very quickly, the language of allyship. I was very surprised when someone came up to me for the first time and said, how can I best be a Muslim ally? Uh, mm -hmm. And that, that, that concept, you borrowed uh, from movements in the past, obviously. But uh, I, I think, too, with faith leaders, and, and that's what Jenny and I, that's who we work with, so I have a bias there. But what I've been seeing is that if a faith leader is educated in, in how to talk about Islam and how to teach Islam, you know, using some of the, the, the soft, the, the faith aspects, then they can more easily talk to their congregations. And we are still a very religious society, and people still do look to their religious leaders, we hope, right, <laughs> for some, some type of guidance. And so we've... We've seen personally that that's a, a, an effective strategy at the grassroots. Did you get the mic? Yes, good, thank you. Hi, my name is, uh, is uh, Avi Bukit. Um, I'm a first year MTS student. Just hold it closer to your mouth. Please. I'm a first year MTS student and um, I'm, a, I'm a local rabbi. Um, so thanks to Professor Eck, I was able to uh, to, to read through some of the backgrounds of uh, Mr. Ahmed and Imam Salim. Um, just as a personal history, it's, to me this is, a, this is very personal and I, I'm glad that I'm at this uh, tremendous panel. Um, so from one side, from my father's side, my grandparents were burned in the concentration camps um, in Treblinka, leaving their 12-year-old son to fend for himself. From my mom's side, um, my, my grandparents, my great-grandparents lived in Tunisia for hundreds of years side by side with the Muslim community mm -hmm. and uh, they went to each other's weddings and funerals mm -hmm. and really lived in peace up until um, the early 50s where the Jewish community wasn't as welcome anymore and that's when they moved. Um, so it, what I would really, this is really towards Mr. Ahmed as a question. Um, I was, I was, I, I was, uh, encouraged by Imam Salim's words about creating a counter-narrative, that there's a certain narrative going on, and, and as an activist in the Muslim community in America, creating a counter-narrative of how Muslims should be viewed from, their, from the truth of, of their religion, a, a religion of peace and love. Um, but in Mr. Ahmed's, from, from your words and from your paper, I feel like the your focus is more about that there's a crisis in America. I know that there's, you, you have said that um, the issue comes from many different standpoints, but do you believe that there's as well a crisis within Islam and how the, the exegesis of the scriptures are being maybe sometimes manipulated by extreme factions and how, how do you see as a scholar and as an activist in America and in the wider international community, how do you see a way of going about changing that interpretation, which I feel um, Christianity has had to be put to the test, um, and their theologians, and trying to figure out how to reinterpret their Bible, their New Testament, 
that has been a source of slavery, racist, racism, anti-Semitism, anti, anti anti-Islam, whatever it may be, do you see that as well in the, that the Islamic scholars have to come together or have come together and start reinterpreting um, things that, uh, you know, scriptures and, and, and sources that might, have, that might have been misconstrued and have led to, have led to certain um, feelings? Mm -hmm. Well, great question. Um, and probably it will consume all of the remaining time if we take yeah. just that question. You've and already it. answered it in part. You know but I, I think uh, I personally disagree with that notion that Islam is a religion of peace. Islam is neither a religion of peace nor a religion of war. Mm. It's a religion. Mm. And people can make it into, make, use a religion for peaceful purposes, or people can use it for warmongering purposes. And both have happened in history, as it has happened in every other major religion in the world. So Islam is no exception. Um, are, there, uh, convert, are there interpretations of sacred texts uh, that, um, I would use the word anachronistic in today's world. It, it appears out of context, out of time. Because something that may have been valid or may have been a, a way of interpreting sacred text a few hundred years ago or a thousand years ago may not appear valid in today's context. And have scholars, and that's true for, again, for every religion. Um, and have Muslim scholars uh, done enough to address those problems? In my view, not. not. And I have written about this in many of you read some of my blogs, I've, I've written about it. Uh, so, uh, and it's, it's pretty obvious when you look at uh, contemporary Muslim discourse around, around the world. Um, in many instances, they have not been able to address some of their contemporary challenges in a, in a, in a way that would be much more forceful and relevant. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one of the things that I have um, pointed out is that when you look at some of the incidents, domestic incidents of terrorism that has happened, whether in... Um, in Orlando or in uh, recently in, in, in uh, New York um, and in other places uh, in Boston over here you had your own own challenges uh, there the local Muslim community did not create that problem the mosques were not the source of the problem which is sure I mean there was no discourse in the mosque that directly led to those people acting in radical ways but in my view the mosques were not solutions either the fact that a young person does not trust their local faith leaders to seek answers to difficult questions and turns to random uh, websites and random sources on the internet to get answers to the difficult question, in my view, is, prob is a problem. Um, so, and, and, and that's kind of the internal conversation that the Muslim community should have. Islamophobia makes it difficult to have that conversation. Um, because anytime we try to provoke that conversation, people say, well, yeah, that's true, but what about this other, this, this is an existential problem for us. In my view, uh, it, it can't be viewed in that manner. We cannot say, well, Islamophobia is a problem, so we have to stop all internal criticism. Well, part of Islamophobia, as I mentioned many times, is fueled by uh, internal Muslim discourse. So that has to be addressed also. It has to be concurrent. And I have a feeling that Imam Salim, if he were giving a sermon today, would be utilizing, as you said, the interpretation of Islam 
of the scriptures in the time and place and issues of our time, which is precisely the point you were making about ijtihad, I think. Yes. Uh, you had a question in the back, uh, uh, right next to Kristen Stone King. Uh, if you'll pass that over there. Yeah. So Diana, can I just make a quick comment? A quick, a quick one, Ali. Yeah. We, we'll what I think is one of the issues uh, I think in the constructions of Islamic theologies is that they're very much embedded in discourses of power. And I think we have to rethink what is the, uh, because the, you know, historically this is how they've, they've emerged. And trying to separate out notions of power and control from a theological framework is absolutely essential. And I think that's where I see some of the basic issues lying. Thank you. I'm uh, trying to be uh, mindful of the time, and what we might do is collect a few questions. But yes, identify yourself. And Hi, uh, my name is Zainab Abdulghani. I'm a second year MDiv here at the Divinity School. Um, and uh, listening to you all in, in the account of Islamophobia, um, as, is ex as is experienced, I hear a lot. Oh. Closer, okay. Um, listening to you all in the account of Islamophobia as is, as is experienced by Muslims in America, I hear a lot of kind of um, experiences of fear, experience, experiences of, of interpersonal uh, uh, xenophobia, racism, uh, bigotry. Um, but I, um, I get, Muslim community is one of the most diverse community, faith communities in the country, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. And so I'm wondering how um, those different intersections of identity, whether it's class or immigration status or race, actually play into the experiences of Islamophobia for different segments of our community. And that's a question for mm -hmm. one of the panelists or for Nancy mm -hmm. who, who mm -hmm. deals with those kinds of, that kind of intersectional work as well. Good, thank you. And uh, then we'll take another question here from uh, Hello, I'm uh, Julia and I'm a grad student here at the Divinity School. Um, we're hearing today one of the most lovely aspects of Islam, and uh, lots of religions I suppose as well, but the issue of forgiveness and um, the way that you talk about some of the things that have happened. But, but to me, obviously, um, there is the issue of things that actually are hate crimes. Um, we're hearing about some really terrible things. Um, and I just wondered how you would respond to that. I mean, how you define a hate crime and when you think it is actually right to take steps to stand up for some of the things that are happening, whether that's through the legal system or otherwise. And then we'll take another question right in the middle here, if you would, um, from one of the students in our class. And then I think what we may have to do is just a very brief kind of final thought from each of you, and then I'd like to have a final thought, too. Yes, <laughs> go ahead. Hi, my name is Yasmin. I'm a first-year A little MTS. higher, Jasmine. Hello? Yes, <laughs> closer to your mouth, yeah. Uh, my name is Yasmin. I'm a first-year MTS student here. I'm also in Professor X class, and I had a question for Imam Salim, but anyone can comment who'd like to. I really enjoyed in your case study reading about how old the community, the Muslim community is in Iowa, and I think that it's fair to say a lot of Americans wouldn't associate Iowa with Islam. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if there's more we can do, or if you have any thoughts on how we could maybe do more education on the history of Islam, specifically in the United States. You know, talking about figures like Malcolm X, I think often, especially African Americans, are left out of the narrative, and we just sort of see Islam as 
foreign and uh, as exclusively Arab. So how we can maybe diversify that narrative a little bit and do you think that that would actually do anything to help combat Islamophobia? Thank you. So we're going to, uh, we're kind of doing this in a li little bit, but uh, let's uh, run down the line here. Uh, Jenny, did you want to? No. Okay. I think what we'll do because we're approaching 11 is just uh, have each of you offer a final comment and maybe I could, um, maybe I could kick off that with another observation that comes from the issues of extremism, um, really chauvinistic extremism in two of the other religious communities in the United States. And yet, uh, you know, as has been uh, articulated, they are very rarely lifted up as part of the problem as well. And one is the extremism that uh, encountered, uh, that uh, Dr. Uh, Ahmed encountered in Jacksonville, Florida, when his nomination to the Human Rights Commission was questioned relentlessly um, by uh, people affiliated with a group called Act for America. If you don't know that group, you better look it up. Um, but it is, a, it is a, one of the several, along with the Center for Policy Studies and others, that, are, that fuel the, the uh, Islamophobic discourse uh, nationally through many, many chapters. And it comes from sources that um, Dave and others from Montana know pretty well, and they're all over the place, um, that are associated with Christian Zionism. So it's largely, if you go to Act for America lobbying efforts in Washington, it's largely uh, extremist Christian Zionists. Um, very, you know, I'd have to say fundamentalist, but that covers a, a, a wider range of things. Then if we were to turn to the other major Islamophobic sort of engine that uh, produced much of the uh, sort of noise around the uh, monster mosque at Ground Zero, etc., we're talking about Stop the Islamization of America, which has other roots in, uh, you know, in Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer that are associated with, I would say, very extremist um, Jewish, pro pro-Israel extremist right-wing uh, uh, Israeli supporters, as was the um, CD that was tucked into the Sunday newspapers all over the country, but especially in swing states in 2008, called Obsession, um, that made that sort of slippage from uh, Islam is really very peaceful to all of the radical things that are done. So I think we have, we have extremists, and those of us who are either Christian or Jewish also need to name the fact that these roots are uh, within our own communities. And um, I think you know, that can't be a sole answer to why such a fueling of Islamophobia, because we know that it has a, a lot of broader uh, roots. Now, I, I would like with that to, um, to turn to uh, this panel again, and I don't know who would like to go first, but from all the things that have come up today, uh, would you care to uh, have a final word? Uh, sure. And then uh, I'll come back up as well. I think my final word will be an answer <coughs> to your question, and I think that, yes, uh, uh, my, fi my final word will be an answer to your question regarding the education of, and the history of Muslims and the Arab uh, communities that arrived late 1800 and early 1900. If you come to Iowa and Cedar Rapids, uh, very small, you know, not really uh, 
not a huge city. Uh, even the locals don't know that we have the mother mosque of America, and the um, the the they don't. And w w like to find it, it's really it's tucked in in a very small local neighborhood, very humble place. Um, I think the the usage of art, a uh, wonderful uh, session that we had last night. Um, is, is really important, the, the, the using art, uh, uh, whether it's um, like uh, poetry or music um, um, or even you know plays and movies and theater and all of that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, many Muslims are hesitant to, to do so because they think that it's, uh, for, for some uh, reasons, it's, it's not allowed, it's forbidden to use art. To, uh, and then, again, I, I like to go back to ishtihad. That's my favorite word and my favorite um, um, thing in the world to think about. So I think if we use ishtihad and art together to kind of um, educate maybe people and, and build the bridges, does this answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. I think there's been very interesting developments in the networks between and among different Muslims, including civil society organizations focused on civil liberties issues, including education right here in Boston. Now we have the Boston Islamic Seminary. And so it's trying to fulfill this niche, which by the way has a course on Islam in America as one of its introductory offerings, because the idea is that Muslims themselves a lot of times don't know their history unless they've had an opportunity to study it in, in a structured way. So between the educational initiatives and the civil liberties initiatives um, with CARE, with the Muslim Justice League, CARE, the Council of uh, American Islamic Relations that just recently has a Massachusetts chapter. I think these organizations, to get to the question over here as well, are helping to, to be a one-stop shop where if someone has an issue or wants to learn more to be effective, that they'll there's now a funnel where people can, can go to then find the, the right links and resources. So this is tremendous, but these organizations, they're still underfunded, understaffed, under incredible attack from the organized uh, Islamic uh, network to the extent that if you go to the Boston Islamic Society website, they didn't even put up any of their staff or, or um, administrative profiles because they were so concerned that this at this stage in the institution's history, if they put out the names of the people who are behind this really wonderful educational initiative, they would come under, under attack. So it's this, this delicate balancing of making the resources available, but yet knowing that, that, that um, there's, it's in a political climate in which that's not always easy. One of the challenges that is confronting us in trying to deal with this problem is that much of interfaith dialogue and much of such events like this is confined to the elites of society. It's primarily an urban exercise uh, and among very elite people within those cities. Um, so when you look at the political uh, uh, oxygen that is fueling this kind of the rise of Islamophobia and other problems in society, it is coming from sections of society that are not in conversation on these issues. And I, and I question myself on that, that um, what would be the way in, um, somebody brought up the issue, Julie, you brought up the issue of forgiveness. 
Um, that compassion, no matter how besieged we feel, no matter how hurtful we feel at this moment in time, we have to summon the compassion within us and, and reach out to people because they are our fellow Americans. Uh, misinformed perhaps, uh, fearful, uh, but we have to figure out the language and the method to reach out. Not so much to preach, but also to understand. And I think it's a difficult challenge. It's a problem that did not originate in any single source. As I mentioned many times, it's a multifaceted problem, and it would require a much more, um, much more um, deliberate exercise in figuring out where the pressure points are and how to release those pressure points in society. What am I doing? What am I supposed to be saying? <laughs> Just conclude. I'll conclude. Okay. Okay. Well, I think um, hmm, there was a university study done that said that you're more likely to be killed by household furniture than by terrorists. And so I think it's important for us to keep things in perspective and understand that like these ideas of social Darwinism and using violence as a means to accomplish national goals and cultural decimation, these, these ideas were not created by ethnic people. They were created by imperialistic Europeans used against Arabs, Af Africans, Asians, and Jews. This is just a fact. And so democracy is not static, it's constantly unfolding. And, and I think that, you know, even though this is the latest iteration of, of democracy, this is not the first time we've seen it. And so we have a great opportunity to either do something great and prevent a greater catastrophe, or we can be a miserable failure, but it comes down to work, boots on the ground, work that we're doing every day, the, the relationships we build with one another. And this is not the first time religion has been, you know, looked at as something uh, that's been despised. In the 19th, late 19th century, Catholicism was, was illegal in Massachusetts. But, you know, thanks to the work of a, a number of people, but among them a bishop by the name of Bishop ben Benjamin uh, Fenwick, yeah, Fedwick. He, um, he did three things that I think that the Muslims can learn from. The first thing he did was he, he began to start institutions that taught lapsed Catholics what Catholicism really meant so that they can understand what they believed. He started in the basement of his home. That, that university later became Boston College. And then he went on to found College of the Holy Cross in, in, in Worcester. So I think it's important for us to establish a foundation of what we believe before we can go and tell other people what we believe because I think what the Sheikh said is correct. Just saying Islam means peace is a cop-out. You're just trying to placate people and you lose integrity when you do that. So that's the first thing he did. The second thing he did is he, he got Catholics out in the street doing social service, back to that silent is Islam. He said, look, this is what we're really about. You know, the theology is what it is, but this is what we're about. We're about helping people. And the third thing he did is he built alliances with people who were who wanted to help other religions, other faith-based faith groups. So I think the Muslims can learn a lot from that, from that uh, system that he put in place in institutionalizing Islam in the West. And I think if we do that, we're, we're off to a good start so far. And thank you all for coming and listening. Alhamdulillah. Right. Um, and I wanted to add to that, actually this was along the lines of what I was going to say, is that really I think Islam and Muslims need to be institutionalized and mainstream into American culture. And the way to do it, I think as, as you've said, it's really 
becoming, you know, hospitals, schools, uh, you know, in a certain way, talking about just as I think Catholics and Jews and so on became mainstream into American culture, it's through these institution building. And so what I think is a priority for Muslims in the United States is getting those networks, establishing those networks, and instead of, I know people, uh, there are many Muslims who send money abroad for um, helping other Muslim communities and so on internationally, and I think that's an important cause, but I think we need to also balance it with thinking about how do we build Muslim institutions within this country so that the Muslim doesn't become the other. And I think by engaging in this kind of work, it's absolutely important. And the other point I'll say just from my own experience as an educator, uh, for many, many years, I've been using aesthetics as a way of countering religion as ideology by teaching Islam through the art. And yes, Muslims will say, oh, we don't, there's no art in Islam. Well, Quran recitation is art form. The Adhan is an art form. Poems in the praise of the Prophet are art forms. There are many different art forms. And getting people to think about introducing people to a religious tradition through its arts is for me been a very powerful, powerful uh, way of countering the dehumanizing um, discourse that is surround Islam. So when I see that kind of an, uh, uh, Islam that's through the aesthetics and through beauty, that and to love, I think that in a way, you know, for me is where the hope lies. Mm -hmm.